So Collective Church, if you have been with us for about the past three weeks, we as a community have been seeking to apply and understand and end this El Poloco of a year, 2017, on, on, on basically the theme of worship, to end it in worship, to come like we've been singing and adore him. And what Keith just so beautifully read, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus that was, her, that was a worship service for her. That was a worshipful song for her, what we just read. But now I don't want anybody to think that this is just some old hymn or this is just another Christmas carol by you know, Mariah Carey. This is not just a random another song. This song, Mary's song, what we just read, is rightly considered revolutionary. It should be known, it should be seen as a revolution. In fact, this song is so revolutionary that during the British rule of India, Mary's song was completely prohibited from being sung in churches. So in the 1980s, the government discovered and thought that Mary's words about God's love for the oppressed and for the hurting were far too dangerous and upsetting. So they banned it. But without knowing the full story, I think for us, maybe now reading it very kind of quickly kind of loses its edge. So it loses it. So we need to understand it for today. We need to be like VH1 and go behind the music in this moment and understand what has been said. So we're going to get into it. And it's been said before, as we're going to get into the gospel of Luke, it's been said before by other authors that each of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, within the New Testament, approach the story of Jesus differently. Every single one approaches the story differently. Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, is like a research paper. Mark is like a Tumblr post. It's very short. It's to the point. John is like a Shakespeare's play. But Luke, ah, Luke starts his gospel. He starts his account like that of a musical, okay? In full confession, I love musicals. Just putting that out there. Not on TV or movies. I hate those. Live musicals. Luke's gospel starts with five different musical numbers. Five different musical numbers. Isn't that insane? Mary's being the opus of them all. Mary's, the Magnificat, is the opus. So with Mary, we need to have in our framework to really understand the song, what we need to have in our framework is that Mary is Jewish, that Mary is very, very poor, that Mary is engaged, and Mary was extremely young. Most of us, it's not a shock anymore. Probably most of us come to understand that she's probably 14, 15, or 16 as all of this is happening. We should also know that if she is from Galilee, like the Bible says she is, that means she is more than likely what would be known as a people of the land. She is part of a people group that's known as the people of the land, meaning one of agrarian culture. So she would have had a very earthly life. Mary would have had a very earthly life in the sense of of livestock and farming and olive groves and wool. But also that meant to be from Galilee means you are from a very unique culture and society. If you're from from Galilee, that means that you are from a land that's known as protest. You are from a land that's known as riots. And you are from a land that's known as revolts. Due to having such a strong population of both Jewish and Gentile. Gentile just meaning un-Jewish. So they had a strong population of both in the area of Galilee. So it was very, very common and very certain to say, if trouble started, it started in Galilee. Like if you would say trouble starts in Galilee. I mean, that's as easy as saying 
Yoga pants in Santa Monica. It's as certain as saying that. Everybody gets it. That's what it means. So trouble begins, starts in Galilee. So because of that trouble, the Roman army and reign was very, very, very present there. Extremely present. Mary would have seen guards going by each and every morning, afternoon, and evening. So Mary, making our friend here, live in a time of um, tension. Mary lives in a time of tension. Between the times, between oppression and liberation, between promise and fulfillment. That, like so many of us now, that, 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 that is her in a time of what we call Advent, meaning she is waiting. She is waiting for complete restoration. They were waiting for something better. They were waiting for something stronger. They were waiting for something fiercer. And they were waiting for something powerful. They were in perpetual Advent. The Christmas season all year round. They were in continual waiting, wondering if the Hebrew God will ever come. We know the scriptures. Is he going to come? Or has this God of the Bible, is this God of the scriptures completely forgotten about us? Or has he abandoned us? So I want to just stop there because I can only probably really safely assume that that idea, that thought, that question is true for probably a handful, if not more people in this room. Am I forgotten of God? Am I, have I been abandoned by God? Am I truly abandoned? How long, will Lord, will I be forgotten? Where is this God you speak of? Again, I bet all of us Christians are not in this room. A part of our church or not in this room have asked that very question. And in full confession, I have. See, culture and society and what's around us and our own flesh doesn't let us undo the notion that this God, that God is this absent father. I think culture, society, what's around us and flesh constantly are perpetuating this notion that God is this bearded Dumbledore in the sky, right? That God is this removed deity, that God is this distant watchmaker who has like set his pocket watch world and then completely disengages. Fueling many of us with wandering thoughts of disengagement, abandonment. See, I've heard it said this way when people are talking about God, especially from unchristians and unbelievers, they say things like, the cats are asleep upstairs and the mice are left to organize the world downstairs. So for most Westerners, Christian or not, God is remote. The idea of God is he's remote. He, she, whatever it may be, is something far from our problems and far from trials, leaving us with this notion of abandonment. I once heard a, um, a priest explain rugs, <laughs> riveting stuff, but he was talking about rugs. And he was talking about, and it's actually quite interesting. He was talking about the details, their intricate design, the amount of time it takes, history. But something I didn't know that this priest brought up when talking about Native American rugs was an important tradition they had. With each and every rug, they were told to leave a blemish. They were told to leave a flaw, um, you know, sort of a, a frailty, a tear in one of its corners. Anybody heard that? Anybody know why they do that? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. you don't have to answer. It's okay. I'll tell you. <laughs> Lily, it's okay. You don't have to answer. It's all right. They believed that that tear, that blemish, 
They believe that's where the spirit enters. That's where spirits would enter. Now, friends, I'm here to tell you that this concept, this concept captures a real beauty of Christmas. So for anybody here who's saying, yeah, but Casey, Casey, for those who are trying to sit with us, Casey, uh, I'm in a lot of pain due to her. I'm extremely angry due to him. I am broken due to this. Casey, I'm in fear, resentment. I feel powerlessness. I feel weakness. I feel confusion. Friends, I'm just here to tell you, we're going to get straight to the point because we're not going long tonight. We're going to get straight to the point. Each and every one of those tears and blemishes is where God enters. Every time. The God who abandons us in those fiery moments is our distant, wrong image of God. Does that make sense? Follow me for a moment. This is so important, so bear with me. Each of us, each of us, Christian or not, if we have an image of God in our mind, that image of God continually and continually and continually abandons us. Can abandon us, the God of our own making, the remote disengaged God, the God who is not giving us what we need, the God who is not turning pain into purpose, the God who is not the God that we really need in this moment, the God who is worthy of our worship. And what the Christmas doctrine, what we just read, this narrative, what it does is perpetuates that abandonment we feel with this God that we've made up in our brain. Or this God that we think he should be. Or this Dumbledore like we said in the sky. So by showing us more and more, what the Christmas doctrine does is by showing us more and more that what we need first and foremost... What we need first and foremost is not external fires to be put out within our life. If this was fixed, if this was fixed, we don't need external fires to be put out. We don't need something stronger, something more powerful, something fiercer. What we need is someone. Someone who enters into the cornered blemishes of our individual and communal and corporate lives and delivers what no one or no no thing could ever give. That being hope. Mary's worshipful song is dripping with hope. That's, that collective church, that, my friends, is the revolution. Why is the song a revolution? Because it's dripping with hope. The very thing every single one of us, Christian or not, male or female, student or 100 years old, whatever it is, we need hope. A concrete hope. Not unfounded optimism, not a wish. We need a concrete hope. We need certainty especially in this city. Can I get an amen? We need certainty in this city, right? How many freaking times are we uncertain of, are they leaving? Am I leaving? Will I get work this week? Will I not get work this week? Are they going to raise my rent? Will I be able to get there in time? Leaving from here to there. I don't know when I'll be there. I'll see you Tuesday, pal. (laughs) We need certainty. Are they even, let's make it more practical for here and now. Are they leaving the church? Are they not leaving the church? Are they going to be here tonight? Are they going to be discipleship? We're going to upset them. We're not going to, we can't do it anymore. We cannot do it. Gosh, we're even uncertain about, is this gluten-free or not? Like there's so much uncertainty in our daily lives in this city, this cutthroat city. But what Mary gives us is an education in how to worship that can be obtained from hope. I want worship to be obtained from hope. We want worship to be attained from hope. So for those who are interested, we're going to get into it. But as an overview, this song, song seems to break down in three stanzas. So if you care at all, write it down. If not, you're going to hear it anyway. First, there is Mary's expression of what she feels, verses 46 and 47. 
Second, she mentions what God has done and why she feels this way, verses 48 and 49. And the rest of the verses, she then spends the rest of the time just describing who this God is. Those are three stanzas, the chorus, the bridge of her song. But if you are familiar with the Bible at all, what you may have noticed right off the bat is Mary, yet again, and I love this, stands in a long Hebrew tradition of strong, powerful female songwriters. From Miriam in the book of Exodus, to Deborah and Judges, to Hannah and for Samuel, to Barbara Streisand, all who sing victory songs over the hopeless. Let's get into it. Let's read verse 46. Bear with me, we can't be exhaustive, so I'm only going to hit like the greatest hits of these verses. Verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. British preacher, nicknamed Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this about these very words. These verses, he goes, I should like to have this as my one motto of my life from this moment until I close my eyes in death. This song, this first line. To magnify something, it's like a magnifying glass. To enlarge it, it's to make it more visible, it's to make it bigger. But again, that's really pretty poetic words. How do we do that within our life? Mary shows us, look at this. Mary shows us, twice she sings, my soul and my spirit. My soul and my spirit has rejoiced in God. So let me illustrate my point further. Yesterday, as Pastor Lorenzo mentioned, we and Tad and Megan and April and Kyle and Courtney and a few others, I'm forgetting you, forgive me. Who else am I forgetting? Allie. We had the incredible opportunity, and my wife Emily, to, to go and serve Kaylee, you didn't speak up. You were there, girl. Holy smokes, I almost forgot you. You're about to leave the church. I saw you getting up. Holy smokes. She's like, I'm out. So we had this incredible opportunity to go serve the people of Claire's Health. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful thing. You guys would be very proud of these volunteers in this church and the people we got to sort of minister to yesterday. It was a very sweet thing. But I had the incredible opportunity, um, unbeknownst to me, kind of until the last moment, that I was going to be Santa Claus. And I had no idea really how big it was going to be. They made it a much bigger deal than we thought. I thought I was just going to walk around, like shake hands and like pat kids on the head. They told them apparently, I'm sitting, I'm taking photos, I'm reading the story. Like I'm, I, I have to have reindeer come. Like I, we are totally taken by surprise by this. My point is this. I get dressed up and I just kind of start walking around and talking to kids. And the kids, man, you guys. The kids, if you ever dress up, has anybody dressed up as Santa with kids before? Was, like, for like 30 minutes, I felt like a deity. It was blowing my mind. <laughs> These kids just worship you, and they're like bringing me cookies. I'm like, yeah, do more of that. That's great. Keep bringing me cookies. So they're like worshiping. They're following you around. Santa, Santa. And it was just great. But I started noticing the ones that brought me cookies, what I started to do with them, and here's my point. I kept saying, like, that's amazing. Extra presents for you on Christmas. And the kids are like, oh, <laughs> And then another kid would be like, hey, you're the best. I'm like, you're the best. Extra presents for you. (laughs) Obviously, I have no control over that. I I have no idea how many presents they're getting. I was a little nervous to look at the parents as I was doing that. Like, what? So here's my point. And this is Mary's point. That she is far 
from being content with mere lip service. We've been three weeks trying to talk about worship. We are eventually going to get to this point about lip service, about singing that's not connected to anything. Her language, Mary's language is sweet and it's powerful and it's poetic. But what we should love about what Mary's done with the song is that she is not satisfied with language alone. She is not satisfied with just singing alone. She speaks of my soul, my spirit is in worship. Not just her lips and not just her throat. All of me is in worship. Showing us when we sing, it should be an audible declaring of the consuming, our soul consumed with the Lord within. And like Jewish customary with her hymn, she explains why God is magnified. This is very, very traditional. Look at verse 48 and 50. Look at verse 48 and 50. It's going to come up here. I want you guys to see this. She's going to explain why. Wait, I promise you guys. It's going to come. Boom! <laughs> Ross, you're having fun with me in the last day here. Good job. She explains why for the next three verses, why she's doing this. Look at this. Four, four, four. You guys see this? And four. Four. So she explains it over and over because... Again, this, my friends, is worship with reason. Her inner being has reason to worship. I worship for this reason, for this reason, for this reason, for this reason. This was, again, customary in Jewish shams to recite God's past faithfulness over and over and over and over. I couldn't help but think, and just a little sidebar, gosh, how would this completely radically change our worship, if we began each day, each song, each conversation, each circumstance, not merely in famine, but drenched in singing about God's faithfulness. Not just coming in need, but realizing and praising him for the bounty that we already have. You see, what we have before us, I want everybody to really get this with with Mary. What we have before us is a lowly woman. We have a lowly woman, but she's singing as if she's like, Meghan Markle or something right now. You know what I mean? Like she's singing as if she's a princess of what she has. She's lowly. From the outside looking in, she doesn't have much, if anything, to worship for. Verse 48 speaks of a humble estate. The original wording there is lowly. In the Greek, that means misery, pain, persecution, and opposition. She goes, I am in misery, I am in pain, I am in persecution, and I am in oppression, is what she just got done saying. Friends, this is not a metaphor for spiritual humility. Oh, Mary, she is so humble. No, no, no. What she is giving is a commentary on her social status. She is young, female, subjected to economic exploitation by powerful rulers. And like we talked about, she's constantly around afflicted, or she's constantly afflicted by, by very near violence and outbreaks on the reg. Yet, she, what she does here is she sets her vantage point. She's setting her vantage point in worship. This is something, as a pastor to friends, and, and as a friend to friends, and brothers to brothers and sisters, this is something I would love for us as a church to get. Here's what it is. I want us to be so practical in understanding this, that she is not passive in worship, letting her attention to God just float by. Oh, I'm just going to kind of just go for it and show up, or whatever it might possibly be. Mary is deliberate. Mary is focused. Mary is attentive. Mary is wise. 
She doesn't let a moment of worship just slip by. She isn't passive with it. I am going to worship God for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. Thus, she pens a song that pronounces a revolution. But what we have to realize first and foremost is that that started as a revolution in her own inner being. Yes, it's a song about Israel and her people and her community, but this for her, first and foremost, a story of Christmas as a revolution inside of her. I love this quote, which I think will help us to understand. Uh, you know, German theologian, spy, and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's so, listen to this quote. The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is, it is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary. Advent, excuse me, Advent hymn every song. Uh, this is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, a strong, inexorable, uh, inexorable, excuse me, song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Hard and strong. I mean, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Now, I think what can happen to us these days as Christians in the church, in worship, is we believe sometimes, especially when we come together like this or outside of this in some sort of corporate worship circles, I think there's this sort of undercurrent belief that worship is supposed to be this pie in the sky. Worship is supposed to be this bit of escapism from all of our issues, like check your pain at the door type of a thing. That we're supposed to all of a sudden walk in here, listen to Bryce sing some Christmas carols, while I've got so much pain and anguish going on, why I'm frustrated, why I'm angry. Nope, pass. Let's just understand that worship is supposed to be something outer body experience where we completely remove from all of our issues and troubles. This is not what Mary is doing. Mary's worship isn't a place of forgetting her lowliness. She's not forgetting her lowly circumstances. Worship for Mary is a place to bring them to. Worship in all of life, but especially in our corporate gathering and our corporate singing, is a time for her to bring this together. That's why in our time of response, we have multiple different ways for people to engage. Everything from prayer to communion to one another to singing, multiple different ways to engage. So again, worship in all life, but especially our corporate gatherings, is a place where our experiences find their God-ordained context. I'm going to say that one more time. I believe that's important. Worship in all life, but especially our corporate gatherings, is a place where our experiences, whether vile or great, are to find their God-ordained context. That is what worship does. And as a pastor at this church, what I long to help all of us see, including myself within the area of worship, is that worship is not a negotiation. Worship is not transactional. Worship is not conditional. I will do this, God. I will sing and I will give and I'll do this if you do X, Y, and Z. Worship, our time together, is a surrender, a sure surrender, a certain surrender. That's the God-ordained context for any and all tears and blemishes that may be in the rug of our life. I want to show us something because this, to me, was my most favorite point of her song. Watch Mary know her certainty. Again, this song is about hope, and that's the revolution. Watch Mary know about her certainty. Look at verse 51. She does something, and her song amazingly transforms. Verse 51. He 
has. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent uh, them away empty. Don't get caught up in that. That doesn't mean he just all of a sudden let rich go away empty-handed. It means everybody's equalized. Okay, the foot of the cross is flat kind of a thing. So and then verse 54, he has helped the servant of Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now I'm assuming we all noticed, did we catch what was happening here? She completely switches tenses in the middle of the song. The song's all over the place. It's like Sergeant Pepper's album. It's everywhere. You can't even make sense of it. We got to get this though, because here's what microwaves my brain. Wit, I read Mary's song, because it's insane. If we pay attention to Mary's words, Notice this. It will not take us long to figure out that they have not come to pass yet. Microwave brain, right? Mary's words are so full of hope. She sings the not yet as accomplishments. Yes, mama. One more time, just so we let it sink in. Mary's words are so full of hope. She sings about the not yet as accomplishments. Oh my gosh. Friends, this gives me jazz hands. Commentators, scholars, theologians like David Garland and his Luke commentary would have us know this. The joy flies in the face of the current circumstances of Israel, still under the thumb of oppressive rulers, but it implies that God is bringing about a new exodus. The mighty, the divine warrior will lift his arm against the enemies in a disarming way. However, through miraculous conception, through the births of infants and arms, through favor towards the weak, lowly, and powerlessness, and through a death on a cross, boom shakalaka, as the kids say it. This is what it's talking about, about what God has done, foreshadowing, and what God will do. This is worship obtained from hope. This is how one should worship with hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. I mean, none of this has happened yet, and she worships past tense for future accomplishments. Mind-boggling to me. This is so insane. She worships as if it's yesterday's news. God has worked in my sorrow. God has fixed my fear. God has saved. God has redeemed. God has, God has, God has, has, has. Collective church, doesn't this, and at least it does for me, challenge the way we praise God today? Doesn't this challenge the way we, do we, the way we pray? Doesn't this challenge the way we see any unforeseen circumstance? God, I give you praise in advance for what you will do. That is hope. That is certainty. That's like thanking God for sunshine in the middle of a blizzard. That's like thanking God for a full belly as you are in starvation mode. Again, I'm beating a dead horse here, but this is hope, true, gritty, real, raw hope. That is leaving the blemish there, the tear there, knowing full well that God is going to sew it up. So biblical gospel hope is uh, transformation determination, transforming determination about the future. That's what true biblical gospel hope is, transforming determination about the future being assured about the future in such a way that it affects our present, being assured about our unforeseen circumstance in such a way that tonight we can worship. Now, for those who don't know this about hope or about biblical hope, um, just so everybody does know, it, it is a complete choice. 
I would say love isn't so much of a choice. There's, there's something natural in us, but I would say even faith, like we want to put our faith. Hope is one of those things where we can really ultimately choose to believe it or not, but inside dying to put our hope into something. So hope is an option. Hope is a choice. Now though, what we need to figure out the greatest hindrance. What is the greatest hindrance to this choice, to this hope? Well, there's only one person we can go to, Charlie Brown. My goal this Christmas season was put a Charlie Brown in every single sermon, and I only did two out of three. And I want to ask you guys for forgiveness for that. I screwed up, big time. Two out of three. I did my best I could, you guys. But there was this really old Peanuts comic strip where Charlie Brown was holding a sign. And all the sign said was, Jesus is the answer. Christ is the answer. Beautiful. Great job, Schultz. Whatever. But if you go a few panels down, there's Linus holding another sign. And you know what he's asking? He goes, what's the question? Jesus is the answer. Cool, what's the question? So from that, what we know is the answer is get hope, right? I've been talking about the answer the entire time. Get hope. What's stopping us is the question. What's stopping us from having hope is the question. What's stopping us from putting our hope in Jesus is the question. So verse 52 Mary, I believe, reveals it. He has brought down the mighty. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. I believe Mary gives the question right here. The mighty. She does it with that word mighty. Mighty, mighty, mighty. And it's an original meaning. meaning excuse me. It just means self-sufficiency. self-sufficiency excuse me. Self-sufficient. That's what it means in its original context and the way it was written. One of, um, one of basically, you know, I got this. See, offering hope to a fully self-sufficient man or woman is like offering salt water to the thirsty. It's unwanted. Again, self-sufficiency, excuse me, the idea, the mentality, the worldview of I got this is the beating heart of what the Bible would call sin. This is the mighty, self-sufficient. See, at the magma core of each of our sins, including mine, you would find us screaming. I decide, I determine, I do, I direct, I, 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 I. One of my most favorite Scriptural narratives on being self-sufficient comes from the book of Genesis. And this speaks volumes, in my opinion, to those who may constantly think that they need to be mighty or are mighty. It's a story about um, Abraham and Sarah. They, if you don't know their story, it's a story about an elderly couple who were hitting their later, much later, much later years, and all they wanted their entire life was a baby. That's all they ever wanted. Give us a baby. They tried for a baby. We need a baby. They're completely barren. And we have to understand that to not have children in those days means no will. It means no legacy. It means no reputation. It's basically as if you don't exist or will not continue to exist. And God tells this couple, no, 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 I'm going to give you a child. No, no, I'm going to give you a child. Your wife will become pregnant. We've been barren for like 90 years. She will become pregnant, God says. But after that promise, years and years go by. And one day, Abraham 
his self-sufficient attitude comes to a complete end. Comes to an end. He gets fed up. He goes outside and he starts doubting. He starts getting angry. And he starts getting very confused with God. God, you promised this. God, you promised this. God, you told me you're going to do this. None of it. I've done my part, God, Abraham would say. I have done it all, he would say. I have done the hard work, Abraham says. I, 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 I. So just like we're talking about tonight, that self-sufficient mindset. But anyway, let's get to the point. Do you know what God says to him? You know how God helps him? This is what God says to a man who's shaking his fist at the heavens. God looks down to him in the darkness of night, and he says, look up to the stars. Abraham, look to the stars, try and count them, and this will be the number of your children. This is so impactful in God's redemptive history that Mary actually sings about it. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The reason the story strikes me like lightning is because God does not fix his problem right away. He doesn't just all of a sudden like, oh, I've completely forgot. Go long and toss him a baby. That's not what happens. He doesn't look at Abraham's whining and go, shuddy. He allows Abraham to completely come to the end of himself. He allows Abraham to completely come to the end of his self-sufficiency. And instead of giving him what he wants, he gives him what he needs. And what is that? It's hope. Look up to the stars, Abraham. See, hope like a rope is like a rope out of a pit. It is most accessible to those who have nowhere else to go. There's no other ropes. They're forced. People who are hopeless are forced to look up. They're forced to look to the stars to realize that we need somebody to rip us out of this pit. So for the hurting and hopeless here tonight, God's same words to Abraham are fitting for every single one of you here. See, as Abraham waited for the birth of his own child, we today now look back and see a different star shining over the birthplace of a different child, Christ the Savior. Announcing to all of the hopeless, all of the hurting here tonight, this is the announcement that the infinite has become an infant that the metaphysical has become physical, that the supernatural has become natural, that the immortal has become mortal, that God has crawled into our tares and into our blemishes. Tonight, on our last gathering, I would love for each and every one of us to worship unified, despite whatever circumstances may be, to come and understand and accept where we are at, despite, again, what pain we might be. So if this message is for you, tonight you can respond by seeking intercession. Meaning, to go and ask our prayer people who are going to be on that wall and on that back wall. They're going to be wearing a lanyard. You'll see them standing up against the wall. Have them go and mediate for you. Meaning, have them go and pray for you. Pray promises over you to encourage you. So I charge all of this with including myself to go and receive prayer from a brother and sister tonight in the back. For the other people who might be here tonight, hopeless and hurting, you can simply respond tonight by making a choice to put your hope in Christ and then coming and telling somebody about it. And then as, as well, communion. Oh my gosh. Communion is so, so important for our church gathering. This 
is our last communion as a family for the year. Tonight. For the year. So what I want everybody to realize is to come and take the symbolic elements, realize what we are taking of a broken body and spilled blood was not only what establishes our hope, but what we're getting into our gut, what we're eating, is that that secures our hope. And lastly, I'm going to end tonight with an illustration that I think hopefully will be fitting and hopefully inspiring and hopefully encouraging as we go into a time of singing. But I was reading about the Velvet Revolution of East Germany this past week, and I don't know if you know how it was started. But protesters began to gather at the foot of the Berlin Wall every Monday evening, and there was about a dozen of them, and they came together, and do you know what they did every Monday evening? They sang. They sang songs together. Then all of a sudden, that main act of protest grew to around 1,000 people. And then in time span of however much, 300,000 people singing together in protest. 300,000 people to gather to sing songs of protest and justice and hope. Until their song was loud enough that it broke through the government walls and that the officials could finally hear their song. This strikes me with some similarity of what our worship gatherings are to be together. Us gathering, singing uh, songs of hope, singing so loudly, so recklessly, that we burst the walls of our insecurities, the walls of our anguish, the walls of our exhaustion, and the walls of our hopelessness. Let's do that now. Let's pray.